Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Casual Man Catter, the point in the universe where cricket and obsession intersect. Two fantastic test matches ran side by side for four days this week, one featuring two of the biggest teams in the sport, the other a David and Goliath battle that was expected to be over within a couple of days. Both of them featured teams that were expected to struggle in the conditions. And indeed, 24 hours before their respective conclusions, those two teams appeared very likely to be soaked in defeat the following day. And yet, through the astounding efforts of two rookie bowlers, one a pace firebrand with a heart as big as far laps, and the other a string bean spinner who had been flogged in the first innings of the match, these teams rose from the carpet to snatch victory against their more fancied home team opponents, and in the process, remind everyone of how great Test cricket is, and why it is still the only form of the game that matters. On today's program, we will take a look back at both matches, and discuss how these results came to pass, and why they are so important, not only for the winning teams, but for the game as a whole. Following on from this, we once again bravely or brave the murky waters of the current climate of world cricket. How the threat of T20 domestic competitions still face the health of the international game and why it is time that the cricket boards of India, England and Australia stop trying to feather their own nest and actually do something constructive with both scheduling and money in order to restore test cricket to the pinnacle it deserves to be, and to help reach an equality with all other cricket nations, rather than pretending the world can survive without their help. That's the basis of today's episode of the podcast that would never have believed it would ever cheer on the West Indies defeating Australia in any form of cricket, having lived through the 1980s, the casual man-catter. G'day there and thanks for tuning into the program and listening to me ramble on about cricket for a little bit more. And look, let's start with the Australia versus West Indies second test match because I don't know that there are many people around in Australia who were disappointed by the outcome of this test match. Uh, And I, I think you just... Obviously, those of us who grew up through the 80s, 70s, 80s and 90s where the West Indies dominated Test cricket for so long. And we hated playing the West Indies because they beat us all the time. And we cheered on the very few Test victories we had against them, like in Sydney in 84, 85 by Dutchy Holland and, and Murray Bennett. And uh, and then uh, and Kepler Vessel scored an amazing 100 in that game too. And then I think in 88, 89, when Alan Border took 11 wickets, you know, ridiculous things like that. But they just kept beating us for so long. And it's been, you know, 30 years almost since Australia won in 1995 and won the Sir Frank Worrell Trophy there. And they haven't lost it since. And the West Indies hadn't won in Australia, a test match in Australia, since 1997. So they've become... The underdogs, the good guys of world test cricket. And and no one could deny them a victory on that final day um, for so much. Now, we spoke on the last episode about how well their young kids had come into the team and done and that they still got beaten by 10 wickets and that it probably wasn't a fair reflection on the game, but that Australia was certainly dominant. So we go to the Gabba. The Gabatoir, where Australia's lost one test in the last, like since 1992, I think it was, since the West Indies toured in 1992 And it was also a pink ball test. And Australia hadn't lost a pink ball test. They'd played more pink ball tests than any other country and hadn't lost one. So everything was against the West Indies. 
And so many things are so good out of this game that it's, it's to, to list them just as a list would be wrong. So I'm going to do a list, but really quick points about them. Firstly, uh, the captain, Craig Brathwaite, won the toss and elected to bat. And I thought that was a really brave decision. The easy decision for him would have been to bowl first and hope that the pink ball and the conditions at the Gabba would have favoured his bowlers and they could have bowled out Australia and then hopefully uh, get through that late period with the pink ball in night time and then come out the next day on a second day wicket and hopefully you know be able to score runs. But he didn't. He decided to bat first and that was brave. And then... When they got to lunch on that first day and the West Indies were 5 for 64, there weren't many people out there who were thinking this game was going to go much longer than two and a half days. And then we saw two batters come out and do a fantastic job who hadn't quite done that in the first game. And I'm speaking about their uh, number five, is it number five, Kavim Hodge, and their wicketkeeper Joshua De Silva. Now, De Silva had been dismissed twice in Adelaide hooking, and Australia baited him again in this innings. Uh, Hodge hadn't made many runs, but he was on debut in that game. And they put on 149 for the sixth wicket. They batted all through the second session without losing a wicket. Uh, Hodge eventually fell for 71, and De Silva fell for 79. But they changed the course of the match in that partnership. And then we got through, West Indies got through to Stumps and was still there at Stumps. Um, the other, their debutante, the off spinner, Kevin Sinclair, made 50. Alzari Joseph scored 32 in the only way he knows how by slogging. But they made 311 on that, by the midway through that second day, uh, through the first session of the second day. And just terrific to watch Kevem Hodge and Joshua De Silva bat and want to bat. 71 of 194 balls for Hodge and 79 of 157 balls for De Silva. So they didn't go out there and go slather and whack. They wanted to keep their wickets intact and they batted superbly. So Weston is making 311 change that match and those two and Sinclair as well, his 50 was very, was very important. Then you come to Australia's batting and they were suddenly 4 for 25 uh, 4 for 24, in fact, when Travis Head was dismissed for a first ball duck. And they were in all sorts of trouble. And who knew what was going to happen? Suddenly the West Indies were on top. Australia were four down. Well, they eventually, when they came back into the second session and Marsh, Marsh was dismissed, they were 5 for 54. And so they were 250 away from the West Indies with five wickets in hand. Now... Kawaja batted superbly, and as he does all the time, and he made uh, 75 in this innings. Alex Carey came out and played a counter-punching innings and made 65 or 49, but then also had that ball hit his top bail, and the bail turned around, and then it didn't fall off. So there wasn't much going for the West Indies there. And then Pat Cummins came out and just blew them away in that last session, scored 64 not out, and then made the declaration to try and get the Windies in and hopefully get two or three wickets before stumps with the seven or eight overs that Australia was going to be able to bowl. So Australia had turned it around. They declared 20-odd runs behind, but they then hoped to get the West Indies in trouble. Now, the West Indies batted through that whole period and only lost a wicket in the last over of the day's play when Josh Hazelwood was able to get Chandler caught behind. Um, and they batted really well to get to that point. And... One for 13 overnight. And I went out the next day, and again, what we saw was the West Indies fighting really hard. Kirk McKenzie, as he did in the first test, batted really well at three. Craig Brathwaite stuck it out as long as he could, didn't score many runs, but again, took the shine off the ball. And their middle order was really good. Uh, Athenae's 35, Hodge again, 29, looked again great again before being run out uh, from short leg by Travis Head. Justin Greaves made 33, the all-rounder. And they crept their way along and got up to 193 all-out. And at least the middle order had fought hard again under adverse conditions and had stuck at it and gave Australia a target of 216. Now, we all know that on that last, uh, that evening before, uh, Shamar Joseph was hit on his toe by a Mitchell Stark Yorker 
And for all intents and purposes, we thought he'd broken his toe. He thought he was gone. He took his shoe off, he limped off, he retired hurt, and that was the end of the West Indies innings. Australia had to bat the end of the night. They got to two for 44 at Stumps, um, having lost Kawaja and having lost Labashane. Uh, and so they were in some trouble chasing that total of 216 required. They came out the next day and they looked comfortable. Both Steve Smith and Cameron Green, who are the two Australians who have been spoken about in the batting order as to whether they should be in those positions or in Green's case, perhaps even in the team. Now they batted along. They didn't look in any trouble at all from the West Indies bowlers. They got along to two for 113. So they're 103 from victory with eight wickets in hand. And Shamar Joseph comes to the crease. Now Shamar Joseph didn't even know if he was coming to the ground that day. He basically thought he wouldn't even be coming to the ground. He was gone for the match. Then he was convinced to come to the ground, to sit there at the ground and at least be part of the team as they tried to fight for victory. Then the doctor got involved and he manipulated and he's obviously given some needles and whatever. And they found a way to get Joseph onto the field. And the captain, Brathwaite, tried all these other options before he got to the point where he said, I've got to give Shamar Joseph a go. And that was here at this point. 103 from victory with eight wickets in hand. And Shamar Joseph bowled what will be considered at the end of this year as the spell of the year for 2024. And everyone who watched it will remember it as one of the greatest spells of fast bowling that is that they have ever seen. And 11.5 overs, 7 for 68. So he took 7 of the final 8 wickets to fall. He had great support at the other end from all three other fast bowlers, Kumar Roach, Alzari Joseph, Justin Greaves, who all did that job as a support role once they'd been trying to get wickets and were unable to do it. And then once Joseph got going, there was no stopping him. And it was just absolutely brilliant to watch. He bowled 10 overs straight before the lunch break. Uh, and that was the extra half hour that the West Indies took because they had Australia's eight down and they thought they could get through. He bowled 10 straight and then he came back on after the break to bowl the final two overs that he got his wickets for. And once he got to the end, it always looked that if he could get Steve Smith off strike and get the tail on strike, that he would get them out. It always felt that was going to be the case. Steve Smith had to do the bulk of it himself. And the deliveries to get rid of Cameron Green first and then Travis Head for a king pair. For Mitchell Marsh, who he just you know just worked him over. To get through Alex Carey with an absolute rip snorter. Mitchell Stark, who came out swinging, but eventually died by the sword he'd been living by. And then Pat Cummins, who'd scored that wonderful not-out innings in the first innings of 64 not-out, went for two, caught behind to a ball that was just too quick for him. Nathan Lyon tried to do the same thing by holding out, but eventually he was caught behind, trying to hook and get the few runs that they needed. And Josh Hazelwood, it always just felt a matter of time that if Joseph could bowl to him, he would get him out, and he smashed his off stump out of the ground. And bowled Australia out for 207, which meant that the West Indies won the Test match by eight runs. It was just fascinating stuff, brilliant stuff. And everyone watching at the ground or at home, there's no doubt in the world, everyone was pulling for the West Indies. And that's... You know, some people will think that's un-Australian, but it really wasn't because the team that deserved to win this Test match won this Test match for exactly the reasons that I brought up here. The fabulous batting by Hodge and De Silva in that first innings to turn it around. Uh, the bowling early in the early in Australia's first innings to have them four for twenty-four, and then the batting uh, that middle order, even though they only made forties and thirties, but the fact that they kept fighting. And then on that last day, even though the bowlers couldn't get through the initial spell with Smith and Green, they kept the total uh, under wraps. They didn't let it get away from them. And then Shamari Joseph came out and just absolutely bashed them into obliteration. And wasn't to see the celebration of the whole West Indian team. I mean, there are 11 guys. You tell those guys that playing in the IPL is better than playing in Test Match Cricket. And the greatest thing about it, and you and to know exactly how much this victory meant to West Indies cricket, to see Brian Lara in the commentary box up there on Fox Cricket in tears at the fact that they'd won that game, and to see Carl Hooper, who was down there with the West Indians and as, a, as an advisor for the batting, 
and he was in tears as well. Here's two of the greats of West Indian cricket over the last 35 years, and they were in tears over a Test match victory in Australia. That's terrific for West Indies cricket, but it's just bloody fabulous for Test cricket all up. It's gone for it. There it is. So a few things else out of that match. Steve Smith carried his bat in that second innings for 91 not out. Uh, and it was interesting because early on against the swinging ball, and what he still looked out of place. But once the ball stopped moving, he looked his supreme self once again. So does this answer the question that he's now an opening batsman for Australia? I think the jury's still out because, like I said, he was still he still didn't look solid when the ball was moving about. The second the ball stopped moving, they didn't look like they were going to get him out. Um, so the question's still open, uh, but a, ter- a terrific innings that will get forgotten, I think, in, as we go down the path in his career. That innings will get forgotten because of the result of the match, and that's perhaps slightly unfair on him. Uh, Cameron Green, I think the jury's still out on him. He made 42 in that second innings. Um, but was absolutely risoled by uh, Shamar Joseph. He still doesn't look like he is a test batter, and he doesn't look comfortable. He's always hunched. It's Nothing's changed in the way he plays. Uh, and to be honest, if he could bat more like Mitch Marsh and stand upright and hit through the ball a bit more, then he's probably going to be a better prospect. But I still don't know that he's a number four for Australia uh, going forward, but then if he's not, who is? If you're not going to, if you're not going to bring Steve Smith back, we still have that question again. Um, so look, and also I, I guess there's a couple of things here too. Is that there's a lot of hate talk out there about Australia at the moment and about the team, and that comes about through different circles, and. Certainly over this uh, Australia Day period, a lot of it is politically motivated um, because the Australian captain and vice-captain both stood up and and spoke uh, well about uh, the Indigenous issue with Australia Day being on January 26 and they feel it's uh, it's something that needs to change and that that the politicians need to make this thing. And a lot of people have come out and said things about those two and about the team as well in itself that um, they need to pull their heads in and they don't need to be speaking that kind of stuff, that they just need to play cricket. Well, I think we all know that's rubbish because everyone on social media gets up and has their say. Um, And just because these guys are um, Australian cricketers, there's no reason for them not to be able to have their own opinion as well. And I think it's, like I said, at the moment, Australia, the Australian team, how do we put this? <laughs> Australia got beaten in this test match. And sometimes, it doesn't matter how good a team you are, you lose test matches that you probably shouldn't have lost. And this is probably a test match that Australia should not have lost. Everything was in their favour, never losing at the Gabba, never losing a pink ball test, the best bowling attack in the world. Uh, they, they, you would think that they should have stood up and and won this Test match convincingly, but as it turns out, we had a young West Indian team where two guys batted out of their skins in the first innings, and we've got a guy who bowled out of his skin on that final day, and that proved to be the difference. So, is it a wake up call that Australia needs? It is. Um, do Australia need to start looking elsewhere for the next generation of players and give them a go because this is what the West Indies have done and look at how well they've done. So do we need to start looking at, say, Lance Morris to come into the test team and, and fire up the bowling attack a little bit? Or do we need to give Todd Murphy more time with the ball in test cricket because he's our next next generation spinner coming through? Or do we need to pick a young gun batter to come into the team to give them experience so that when these older guys do finally fall away, that we have young... I think the answer is probably yes. 
that Australia have relied on this lineup for such a long time, or for seven or eight at least of this lineup for so very long, that we've got to get to the point where someone else has got to be given a go. And this test match showed that bringing young blood into a team is not necessarily a bad thing. The victory, of course, means more to the health of world cricket than another Australian victory would have. So that's the great thing about the West Indies winning. Um, I guess finally, if you look, Australia's bowling is as it is, and it doesn't look like it's going to change any time in the near future. The batting is different. The way that Head and Marsh have played over the last 12 months has been praised, and they are praised for the way they've played this summer. Uh, Head's century in the last Test match was just fantastic and was very much a part of Australia being able to win that by 10 wickets. Um, Marsh is batting in the three tests against Pakistan. Even though he didn't score 100, he scored several 50s and he, he hit the ball hard and, and changed the way the game was when he came to the crease. So when it comes off the way that they play, it's match winning and it's entertaining to watch. But when it doesn't, then sometimes it looks ugly. And it exposed Australia's lower order in this match to more danger than they generally could cope with. Now, in the first innings, Pat Cummins' innings is the difference to that. But honestly, exposing the, the lower order to a guy like Shamar Joseph the way he was bowling, Australia's middle order had to avoid that happening because the danger was exactly what happened, that he would run through them, and he did. But this is the way the selectors and the team, and the team hierarchy, want to go. And look, I may have some qualms and questions about it, but you can't as far as the fact that success so far has outweighed any failures, the failure perhaps being this test match. It's just that the Australian batting at the moment does have that gaping hole like in the Death Star, where the one little weakness that can be found, that if you can exploit it, and if you are brave enough and good enough to get your shot down that little hole into the Death Star, then you can make the Death Star blow up. And you mightn't always be able to find that slot, but when opposing teams do, Australia's batting is severely exposed. And... It certainly was exposed in their first innings when they were 4 for 24. And it certainly was in that second innings as soon as Cameron Green was dismissed and the wickets just kept falling over. So there are questions there. Um, and like I said, my the way that I would see it is, is obviously different from the way the Australian selectors are. And they're in front well and truly in front over the last 12 months in regards to series and test victories. Um, but New Zealand will be interesting when they go there to see how our test batting goes against that. Finally, just a quick look at the West Indies. And on paper, the team that they sent out here this summer is a weaker one than they sent out here last summer. And last summer, as we know, they were defeated fairly comfortably and were just not able to handle Australia. Um, but it's amazing how a team can pull together and um, the charge of youth <laughs> and the fact that all of these guys who made their debut in this series, they don't know what it's like to lose, like all of these older heads. These older heads have been bashed down for years and years and being beaten by all the teams around the world in Test cricket. And it's a hard thing to come back from. But when you've got guys come into the team like they have in this series, the West Indies have had in this series, guys such as Kirk McKenzie, Alec Ath um, Ath Athanase, Kevin Hodge, Justin Greaves, Kevin Sinclair, all these guys, and Shamar Joseph, all these guys are just brand new on the scene, and they don't know what it's like to lose in Test cricket. All they know is, I've been picked for the West Indies, and I'm going to go out there and give my all to try and win a Test match. And Chanderpool hasn't been around that long either. So 
I just think that that mindset that like the the, the team coach and the staff of the Westies must be absolutely ecstatic with how these last few weeks have gone. And that's a terrific thing. The captain, Craig Brathwaite, has been terrific. Uh, even though he and Chanderpool have not succeeded on this tour as opening batters, they are still still the West Indies' long-term opening batting lineup. And, and Brathwaite's success to this point in his career is second to none. And we all know Chanderpool is going to be a very good batter. So their opening partnership still looks solid. And Brathwaite's captaincy, from an observer's point of view, was just excellent. His field placings, his tactics, and the bowling changes were all just really interesting and caused problems to the Australians. So a lot of thoughts gone into that. So whether that's Brathwaite himself or whether it's Brathwaite and the coach and the team, whoever it is, they've done a terrific job. As I said, Kirk McKenzie, Kevin Hodge, both look to have a really good temperament and a terrific future at test level. Uh, Alec Athanase showed some good signs. It'll be interesting to see how he goes as well. Um, The young all-rounder, Justin Greaves, has shown some talent. Probably more with the ball so far, but he did bat very well in that second innings in Brisbane. Shamar Joseph... Can't say any more from what he's done. He's taken two fifers in his first two tests. He's won a test match for the West Indies off his own back um, with a damaged toe. Um, I wonder how he feels a couple of days later. I wonder how that toe's going. (laughs) But he is a superstar in the making. Alzari Joseph is still very good. His length is just still a bit short. And I know I don't know anything about cricket, but honestly... If someone in that team could just get into bowl a metre or two metres fuller, he would get so many more wickets and, and cause so many more problems. Um, and how good was Kumar Roach? He's the veteran. He's not as fast anymore, and he got panned for his for bowling at you know, 128Ks in Adelaide. But he's still the leader of the pack, and the way he bowled on a couple of occasions in this series was just fantastic. West Indies need to find a spinner, probably to balance this out. I don't know who that is, um, but... If they can find a spinner who can come into a test match and cause some problems, then the future is bright. And how do those who are not in this team? Um, Now, we've got a couple who weren't picked, uh, Hetmeyer and Paran, um, but both, I think, are playing in South Africa anyway in that T20 rubbish. Um, Holder and Kyle Mayers both were invited to come on this tour and they said, no, we're going to go play in South Africa, in the T20 stuff, because they're looking towards the T20 World Cup. How would they feel right now after this victory? I mean, this is a massive moment in West Indies cricket in the past 30 years. And I know it's only one test match, but it is a massive moment. And as I said, it was shown by the way that both Lara and Hooper were in tears after the game, how big this is. So... For those guys, how do they feel now and how do they fit back into this team if they want to play again? And do the selectors, Desmond Haynes, the great Desmond Haynes, does he go with them again or does he stick with this young group? It's going to be really interesting to see how the West Indies come from this into their next few test matches whenever they may be. And obviously we know because uh, they are the West Indies, they're like a lot of the other countries who aren't playing much test cricket. I can't wait to see how they go and... and I'll be following uh, with great interest because world cricket needs the West Indies to be strong in test cricket. And how good would it be? I don't want to be beaten for 15 years again. Don't get me wrong. I don't want fast bowlers bowling around our heads and rolling us for 70 and 80 like they used to. But to get them back to a level par with all the other test nations would just be fantastic for world cricket and test cricket in general. There was another test match being played at exactly the same time, which was fantastic because it was a day-night test in Australia. It started at 3 o'clock our time, and that's the same time as the test match over in India between India and England was starting from. So they started and finished at exactly the same time every day. And for those of us who were on holidays at the time, it was just marvellous to have two TVs watching this test match. And again, it's a big series. It's a five-test series between India and England. It's uh, India being at home, having been beaten at home for about 12, 13, 14 years. 
against England and their new all new baseball technique and it's there's a lot of interest going into it but I don't know that anyone really expected the test match to go the way that it went when you consider that uh, like England batted first and went like the clappers to start with but then were bowled out for 246 in their first innings and uh, Stokes' top score was 70, so he batted with the tail and was able to build up the innings after uh, early dismissals. And then we went into India's innings, and everyone in India's uh, top order all scored runs. It's 80, 24, 23, 86, 35, 87, 41, 44. And they racked up 436 runs. And so that's, you know, that's a very sizable lead. It was within almost 200 runs. It was 190, if you really must know. 190 lead on the first innings. And then England went into bat again and just kept going. And you'd have to say that despite the fact that uh, Crawley and Duckett both, once again, got starts, which they tend to do, which seems to be in in their baseball fashion, they get to 30 or 40 at a runner ball or better, and then they get out. And... That doesn't, I don't know that that works great for England. They will continue to say that it does. But you'd think with the start that you could get on and, and, and maybe knuckle down and get to 80, 90, 100 after that. But the point being, they didn't. Root then went very quickly, as did Bairstow, as did Stokes. They all sort of started to fall over pretty quickly after those first couple of wickets fell. And. They were 5 for 163 when Stokes was dismissed. So they were still 27 runs behind with five wickets in hand. And then, not only Ollie Pope's amazing innings, and it really was. And I look, I don't have any raps on Ollie Pope as a, as a batter. And even though England have for three years saying he's going to be the next big thing, he's going to be the next Joe Root, all this kind of stuff. And I, when I've watched him, I honestly don't see that. But you can't deny this innings um, because he finished on 196. He was the last man dismissed. But with Ben Folkes, Rahan Ahmed and Tom Hartley, he batted through this period where they were 27 behind with five weeks to go. So Folkes made 34, Ahmed made 28 and Hartley made 34. So they took the score from 5 for 163 to 8 for 419. So 250 runs were put on for those three wickets. And then, obviously, the last couple of wickets fell very quickly for one run, as it turns out. But they made 420 runs in that innings. And that was just a remarkable period of cricket where they had India on the ropes, and India had no answers, seriously no answers. And you could see the frustration from Jadeja and Ashwin in particular, but certainly also Axel Patel, who just... It killed Australia with the bat. So that left India 231 runs, a similar total to what Australia was chasing to win the Test match at the Gabba. And again, it's probably a total that you would expect India to chase. And they got a reasonable start. They were 42 before the first wicket fell, but then the second wicket fell then too. And then Sharma fell at 63. And then they brought up Axar Patel to bat at number five, now, against Australia last year, you remember he batted nine and just kept belting 60s, 70s, 80s against us, and we couldn't get him out. So they obviously thought this was the way to go again, but he came in and he made 17 off 42, and then he was gone. And they just kept falling over, and they kept falling over. And then England just found a way. And again, much like Shamar Joseph, Tom Hartley, on debut, left-arm spinner, looks innocuous, he looks to be uh, doing the Lloyd Pope and already going bald at a very young age. Now, in the first innings, Hartley opened the bowling for England and bowled 25 overs and finished with two for 131. So he was belted everywhere at almost six runs and over. And yet Stokes just stuck with him again. Now, he didn't open with him. He brought him on first change. But he finished 26 overs in the second innings, seven for 62, and won England this match. So what a great thing by Stokes. And again, I don't like to praise England and I don't like to give them credit and things like that. But Stokes just stuck with his man and just threw in the ball and just kept throwing the ball and said, here you go. And you've got 
Jack Leach in that team. Um, you've got Rehan Ahmed, who's in that team. So Hartley was probably the third spinner of the guys picked. And then Joe Root opened the bowling in the second dig. So they had four spinners. Mark Wood bowled eight overs, and that was it. And yet Tom Hartley here on debut has gone through and he's won this match for his team and bowling out India as a spinner. But most importantly, I guess, is the fact that he's a left-arm orthodox spinner and that's the kind of spinner that works in India. And like I said, when Australia was there last year and they took a couple of wrist spinners, and it, just, and it was the wrong move. They had to have our... Um, Kuhneman over there bowling there earlier than they did if they thought they were going to win this series. Maybe next time they'll remember this. But what a test match. So, of course, England got up and they won by 29 runs. And what a fantastic... And again, they're obviously England are jumping up and down and saying it's baseball, it's all this kind of stuff, it's, it's how we're positive and all this kind of stuff. Now, that is... Mostly true, because, as I said, Ollie Pope, that magnificent innings of 196, that that's one out of the books. That's just a fantastic knock, and he's had those big things. But the difference that the current Ollie Pope has compared to when he probably first came in this team is the current England mindset is that they now, they're no longer scared of losing, and they were. And you've seen that in countless number of Ashes series in Australia where England have been scared of losing and they've been trying to play for a draw from the start, and then if they got into a chance of winning, then they'd do that. They don't have that mindset anymore. They are not scared of losing. They back themselves to win from whatever period they're at, and that's helped enormously with several players, and Ollie Pope appears to be one of those. Now, it won't always work, and when it doesn't work, it looks ugly. Um, it's a bit like I was talking about uh, Marsh and Heads batting, it's it's similar in the same way is that when it comes off it's beautiful to watch and when it doesn't come off it looks ugly and you start questioning whether that should be the way to go but they've beaten India in India after being almost 200 behind on the first innings who would ever believe any team could do that in the modern era against this Indian team the only thing that's missing from that Indian team is Virat Kohli who is not playing in the first two tests it's a family matter that he's not playing for, for whatever it is, that's as much as they've said. And this is where India have shown themselves to be vulnerable because they lost the test match in South Africa, even though Virat Kohli was playing, but he was the only one who looked capable of standing up to that South, South African attack in South Africa, especially in that first test when they got beaten. And he was the one in both those tests who came out and said, I'm Virat Kohli, you're not going to get me out and I'm going to score runs and I'm going to score them quickly. So now without him, there didn't seem to be anyone there who was able to sort of hunker down and, and bat the innings that the team needed, especially in that second innings. First innings was fine. They were on top, everything was going their way and it did and they kept it going. But in that second innings when they needed someone to chase down a middling total, they didn't have him there to be able to lead from the front. And... Is it just is it easy to say that he is the difference between India winning and losing this test match? Well, you'd reckon that in the two innings, you'd have backed him to score 30 more than any of those others who may have replaced him. And um, obviously the guy who probably did replace him was Shreyas Iyer. Now he made, um, sorry, he batted in the first innings and he made 35. And in the second innings, he made 13. You'd reckon that Virat would have scored 30 more than that combined, batting in that position. And that's the difference in the match, as it turns out. However, a great win by England sets up this series beautifully. And it's a five-match series instead of a three- or four-match series, which is even better. But I can't wait to see what kind of a goat track that India roll out for this next test match, having lost this one, knowing they have to win and just throwing everything at the pitch and maybe not even watering it for three weeks and maybe getting the spade out just to see if they can beat England at their own game. Man out at long on, but he needs to be 25 seats back. 
I had a rant on Facebook about this, and, and I've ranted here before, so I, I, I do probably just need to keep this short and sweet, because anyone who listens to this podcast and has listened to me, or you know, who knows me and has listened to me talking about this for 30 years, knows exactly what I think about this issue and that, what needs to be done. And honestly, we've gotten to the stage where if there was any excuse that the ICC, along with the three boards of the main big three, as they like to call themselves, Australia, India and England, if they ever needed a better reason to open their wallets and start funding the other nations as well as they get funded themselves in order to make test cricket great again, then they should have no reason after these two test matches that we've just seen. Now, I know both test matches involved all three, two of them playing against each other, and they would say, this is why we have what we do, because this is great test cricket, this is what it is. But it's not that at all. It's the fact that the West Indies have performed so well in Australia over the last two weeks with a team that everybody wrote off. Every single person from every country thought the West Indies were coming out here to lose two zip in two and a half days each. Now, the first test was lost in three days. That is true. But this test went three and a half days and the West Indies got up and they won and there's there's no luck involved. Uh, they didn't get the best of the conditions and Australia were under hardship or anything like that. They played the better cricket and they won the test match. So we've got all these young kids coming through from the West Indies and we're using the West Indies as the example here, but we'll talk about South Africa shortly. These players from the West Indies have all gotten their game because the main players from the West Indies from the last 15 years haven't played for the West Indies. They've played in T20 domestic tournaments. And I'm talking about the IPL especially, but also the other ones around the world. And they play in those because they get paid 10, 20 times as much to play in those for six weeks than they do for playing for the West Indies for 12 months. So they get to the point, obviously, where they just decide, I can't afford to play for the West Indies. I've got to go and play in these T20 tournaments. And you can't really blame them for that. And Chris Gale extended his career anyway to play into his 40s because he was earning so much money and still just being able to bash the ball around. He at least did stick with the West Indies Test team for quite some time and still performed really well. The 133 that he scored out here in Australia uh, back in about 2009, I think it was, is still one of the most memorable innings played in that Test match where he bashed the ball everywhere. It was fantastic to watch. But the problem for the West Indies now is is that these kids are coming through. And these kids are going to have been seen by all these franchises, especially in India, and they're going to have millions of dollars thrown at them to come and play in the IPL and these other T20 tournaments. And they're going to have to make a choice at some stage if it conflicts with a West Indies one-day series or a T20 series or a test series. They're going to have to make a choice. Do I want this $2 million or do I want to play for the West Indies for a tenth of that? And the answer appears simple. Now, the greatest thing that happened yesterday was that Shamar Joseph came out and just said, no matter how much money they throw at me in the future, I will always put Test Cricket first. And that's the problem with that is that at his age, when he's just coming to the team and he's had such a great day, that's easier to say. But what happens in four years' time when he's had some injuries maybe and he's missed some cricket and he's at home and he doesn't have any money and someone comes along and says, I'm going to give you a million dollars to come and play for this four-week tournament. But the West Indies are playing in a test series against Bangladesh at the same time. That's where it becomes difficult. That's where it has to change. And it has to change by being funded by the ICC, which is basically India, England, Australia. Now, we all know that India get 45% of the revenue raised by the ICC around the world because they have the biggest draw card, the biggest number of people viewing. Um, and then Australia and England both get about 6.5% each or something like that, which is a fair, still a fair whack. It's a lot below India, but that's just what it is. Now, the problem with these other three countries is, is they basically have their test team and then there are other players who play in the white ball cricket don't necessarily play in the test team. Some do, some don't. 
so they can afford to have players who just want to play T20 cricket because it doesn't affect their test teams. But teams like the West Indies, like Pakistan, as we've just seen out here in the recent series out here, um, and South Africa, these teams cannot afford to have players choosing to play T20 cricket rather than playing in a test series. So how do you fix that? How do you get beyond that? And the point is, it's two things. The first thing is money, and it's always money, and it's always going to come down to money. And the ones who have the money are always going to be in a better position, which is those three main countries. And, of course, Pakistan, their players can't play in the IPL because of the BCCI and, and all the obvious trouble politically between both India and Pakistan. So they don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. But West Indies, South Africans, Bangladesh, uh, all of those teams, even New Zealand to a certain degree, are having players who are drawn to get more money to play in T20 competitions. So what do you have to do to fix that? You need to ensure that the players, the test players from those countries are on earning enough money out of playing test cricket as the number one thing to that they don't have to throw that away to go and play IPL cricket or to play in the Bangladesh Premier League or to play in the Big Bash or the South African T20 or the Caribbean Premier League or the 100 or whatever else they play in England as well. There's a tournament everywhere around the world that are offering more money to play over a four-week period than the West Indies will get in a year. So if you're going to have kids like this coming through, they're going to look at it and say, I could play three T20 tournaments around the world. That's three years' wages I get for playing for about 12 weeks. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should then have the ICC say to the West Indies, well, we will pay your players the same amount to just stay and play test cricket with you. That's unrealistic. But you need to get a certain wage to a certain point for all these players that they know that they're going to get on the contract and that they can actually get that playing test cricket for their country and not having to go around and play something else. And if something else fits in, that's great. They can go and play that. But if we're going to make test cricket, firstly, equal across the board all around the world for all teams, then we need to have the best players playing test cricket. And the only way to do that is to make it a money a money venture that's worth uh, these players staying with their country in test cricket than going and playing T20 cricket somewhere else. Now, do I think that's going to happen? No, I don't. I don't believe that I don't believe that India or England or Australia feel that the other countries are worth worrying about. I think that all they're worried about is making sure that they play enough series against each other to keep the crowds coming in and they make all their money from those series and then the series they believe they lose money on, such as Australia would be thinking this summer with Pakistan and the West Indies, well, at least we've got money in the coffers to cover our bottom line. Not about making sure that these other teams are competitive and if they are, and if the West Indies are back to playing like they were in the 80s, that the crowds will obviously come back because they will come to see that West Indies team. Now, you can't tell me now that after this test match that people wouldn't want to go and see this West Indies team play. And we saw in the Pakistan series that people want to come and see Pakistan play because they play bright, attractive test cricket and they've got some really good players and some good up-and-coming players. The fact that they have lost those test matches this year doesn't mean they're bad teams. It just means that at the moment, Australia have better resources and have these players. If we lose two or three guys to injury, as we've seen in the past... We're not as good as we are. And other teams have the chance to do better. The only way to keep Test Cricket as good as it is, as good as we've seen this week, is to make sure that it's a level playing field for all these Test Nations and bring this. International Cricket has abandoned Zimbabwe so poorly after they were brought into Test Cricket back in 1999. It's terrible what's happened. I know the country's in a mess politically, but they've been abandoned by the ICC and they've struggled ever since. And it's a real shame because they had some fantastic players at that time. Bangladesh is more or less in the same place. They've more or less been abandoned. They've had some good players in recent times, but they're about the time where they're going to retire as well. And who are they going to have coming through? 
Sri Lanka have had such great teams. Look at the team they had 10 years ago when they had those great three players all playing in their test team. And now they are struggling, even though they beat Australia when we went over there 18 months ago. But does anyone remember that? Does anyone care about that? If they come to Australia, would anyone go to see them? There needs to be something done in order to ensure that these players not only stay in the test level, but that the young kids coming through want to play test cricket and aren't just looking to get a contract somewhere else in the world. And it's up to the ICC and these three main countries to start putting their money where their mouth is. And is that right? Putting their money where their mouth is? Putting their mouth where their money is. I don't even know which one that is now, does it? Let's put their money where their mouth is. And as they are saying that they want Test Cricket to improve, well, let's see you throw a few dollars out there and put it into a fund that funds these lesser countries and allows them to bring cricketers through so that we can have 9, 10, 12 great Test nations playing against each other and not just the same three that we have to watch all the time because apparently that's what we want to see. Just reach out and catch it, Jeffrey. What a magnificent hit. I've ranted too long. <laughs> and that's not unusual for me. And anyone who's listening to this knows that to be the case. If you've gotten this far, I appreciate you listening to me. And I hope that uh, we've had a discussion, you and I, uh, that we've uh, come up with some ideas, uh, that there are things that I've said that you agree with, that there are probably things that I've said that you disagree with. Um, because that's what makes cricket talk so good. It's not about everyone agreeing uh, on certain things, but it's about everyone trying to work in the right direction to get to the final result that we all want. And uh, obviously a discussion where there's just me on a microphone and you listening through earphones isn't really a discussion at all. But I do appreciate that you had any desire to listen to what I had to say. Um, if you did, I hope you've listened to the other episodes in this podcast. Of course, this podcast itself has only been going a couple of months. All the other episodes for the last three years are still on my other podcast, Thoughts from the Mental Cavern, if you want to catch up on those. And hopefully, you'll come back for whatever the next episode on this podcast happens to be. And uh, I don't even know what that'll be yet, but it'll be cricket-related, because that's what it is. It's the casual man-catter. Cheers. <laughs>